Welcome to the Risk and Repeat podcast, episode number 142. I'm Rob Wright, Security News Director at Tech Target, and this week we have a special guest, Tenable CEO Amit Uran. Tenable held its Edge 2019 user conference in Atlanta recently, and Uran kicked off the event with his keynote address titled The Cure for Cyber Helplessness. So I asked Uran, what is cyber helplessness? What is the cause of it, and how can it be fixed? We also discussed a number of other topics from nation-state threats, vulnerability management challenges, and whether or not there are too many cybersecurity vendors in the industry. Here's the discussion with Amit Uran. Whether you're talking to CISOs or you know practitioners, or certainly these days when you talk to CEOs about cyber or CIOs or you know, board members and audit and risk committee members, a lot of them have this sense that, look, we're doing some things, we've hired some smart people and we're hoping for the best, but we, you know, we feel like being breached is, is inevitable. Like, uh, you know, the bad guys are so good and they're, uh, you know, constantly after us and we have to get everything just perfectly in order to be successful defending ourselves that, you know, breaches are almost inevitable. And uh, I think that is this sense of helplessness that is just couldn't be more inaccurate. And, you know, this perception that the boogeyman of the day, whether it's the Chinese, the North Koreans, the Russians, the Iranians, the, the, the cyber criminals, like they're, they're so far ahead of, of the defenders that there's uh, a sense of helplessness that's become really, uh, I won't call it crippling, but really underlies a lot of the thinking in, in, in the community. And uh, it's this learned sense of helplessness that is, you know, couldn't be uh, further from the truth and the accuracy of the situation. When you look at the data, you actually get filled with a great sense of we'll call it optimism, but a great sense of empowerment, and you can have a massive impact on the security of your enterprise. And we see it in our customers, and you know, I've seen it in enterprises over the last 25 years, where those that get it and those that behave that way are far better off and have a far lower likelihood of getting breached than others who are either just spending money or have this mindset that, you know, we're going to get breached no matter what we do. Uh, so that, that's kind of like the basic premise. And, 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 it, and it, 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 it bothers a lot of people because, one, they've become so used to thinking about, oh, breaching, you know, well, of course we're going to get breached. These sophisticated adversaries, these incompetent, you know, how could we possibly defend ourselves against the foreign intelligence service? Um, and the answer is you absolutely can when you look at the, 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 the data, well, first of all, a small minority of the breaches uh, are coming from these intelligence services, right? Depending on whose data you believe, it's anywhere from 1% of the breaches to as high as 12% of the breaches. But either way, it's a small minority. I don't think anybody claims that, that it's a majority of the, the stuff out there. And, and the second is, uh, those advanced adversaries are using the same exact techniques as as the other you know, 
less sophisticated adversaries. And, and so when you look at the data, a majority of the breaches are caused by poor hygiene of systems, meaning people aren't applying patches, they aren't maintaining systems with a, you know, I'd say a reasonable standard of care. They're exercising negligent behavior with their IT systems, just to you know, call a state a state. And or they're being uh, careless with their user population, meaning either users that are poorly with bad identity and authentication and identity and access management practices. So, uh, even, you know, of course, you know, phishing is very sophisticated, but if you use multi-factor authentication, if you have reasonable controls around access and privilege access, uh, the impact and the effect of phishing is greatly reduced. And so you end up having this scenario where both bad identity and authentication practices combined with vulnerable systems you click on something and the exploit works because you're using a password and or your system is is uh, you know unpatched. Like those combination of things are what result from you know a vast supermajority of, of of breaches. And when you look at the sophisticated stuff, the nation states they're not using anything more sophisticated. And, and the data actually shows us that. The experts that respond to these things actually tell us that. You can, I can, you know, we can go on, I go on and on. Well, Josh, ask questions. <laughs> well, jumping back to your point on sort of the learned behavior, how do you think we got here? How, what do you think sort of contributed to that that mentality? Yeah, you know, uh, a, a couple of things. One is, I think we as an industry have done you know, perhaps the, the, a disservice because so many things are theoretically possible. Uh, and, the, you know, we've gotten very accustomed to, you know, very quickly throwing out, oh, systems can't be secure. There is no perfect security. And, and so I think people start latching on to that. I think defending your systems well is something that people view or have viewed as very complex. And it's not easy, and, and so they have a little bit of helplessness, so it really can't be done. Uh, and I think also the sensationalism around cybersecurity, in part by vendors, the, the vendor community who always want to sell the next you know, gadget, the next mousetrap, the next sophisticated capability, generate a tremendous uh, <clears throat> voice in, on this topic because of the number of dollars spent on marketing and, and the fear and the hype. And candidly, I think the media has played into this because the things that are sexy, the nation state adversary, the zero day exploit, the, you know, so our perception of the prevalence of these things and the impact of these things is heightened in a, I don't know if it's a virtuous circle or, or in, a, in a circular fashion, we'll call it. And, and, this, and this is where you have to cut through the hype and, and the BS of, of the cyber industry. Like, look at what's happening. You look at every single, like 
literally every single high-profile breach, maybe with Stuxnet as the exception. You look at every single high-profile breach, and I'm not going to say that there aren't ones which are tied to nation-state actors. There absolutely are. But even the ones that are nation-state actors are not some super rocket science, sophisticated, you know, James Bondy type of exploit. They're going after known vulnerabilities with published exploit code because it's less risky, it's cheaper, the attribution is much more difficult. There's like a million and one reasons under the sun why the U.S. government and every other government under the sun and every other cyber criminal prefers that path of execution versus some super sexy unknown exploit side channeling a microprocessor and, and all of the sophisticated and you know things that would bypass kind of the protective measures we could put in place and so that's what they do and it's not just so what i would say is outside of uh Stuxnet, you know, and you report and research this stuff, like, I think you'd be hard-pressed to identify a single nation-state breach, which was the result of a zero-day. Like, they just, they just are so few and far between and or aren't out there. So the things that we worry about, we conjure up this fear and this helplessness in our minds about what the adversaries are really doing to the point where we aren't doing the basics. And if you do the basics, you're going to be able to protect yourself against just about every breach, including the nation-state actors. And those basics are maintain your systems, apply your patches, right? If Baltimore applied the patches that were, and Rob Joyce called it out, if they applied the patches that were available two years ago, it doesn't matter <laughs> you know, whose exploit they're taking the risk. The patch was out there. They didn't, they didn't maintain their systems. And the same argument is, is being made and could be made of the victims of, of, of WannaCry and victims of NotPetya and the soon-to-be victims of, 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 of the current Microsoft uh, you know, doozy. It's like there's just a lack of uh, uh, passion, if you will, for doing the things that you should be doing to uh, responsibly manage an IT environment. But it also seems like in some cases the vulnerability scanning and patching is is not always the easiest thing to do. There are, there are challenges, there are complications. Like, you know, I'm thinking of like Equifax. They knew that that Apache Threats vulnerability was out there. They got the warning. They took action. But somehow they missed a system that was vulnerable and they didn't they didn't patch it so is it just is it legacy systems and just sort of the complicated nature of IT that makes you know vulnerability scanning and patching challenging or are there other things that you think sort of uh, are ahead of that in terms of the the, the biggest challenges yeah listen I I, I think there's uh, you know it's great to, to uh, acknowledge the fact that it isn't it isn't easy to do. Right? Just because it's straightforward doesn't doesn't mean it's easy to do. It requires work. But you know, just because it's hard to do doesn't mean you shouldn't prioritize doing it. That's what being responsible is. It isn't necessarily the fact that you spend you 
know, zero day preventative measure on your on your uh, endpoints. It means managing your systems well, which is doesn't cost fifty million dollars, but it means prioritizing. It means setting a culture in the enterprise where you're going to take the time to manage your systems well. And if managing legacy systems takes more time and takes more resources and is more cumbersome and painful, then that increases the incentive to modernize some of that legacy uh, infrastructure. But you have to realize that the cost of ownership, the cost of doing business, has to include responsible maintenance of you know, modern systems and legacy systems. And, and so that's, I think, where enterprises need to evolve their thinking about what it means to deploy IT. It's not just about adding a new feature and throwing a new system out there to make their business more efficient. It's about understanding what the life cycle and maintenance of these uh, capabilities is going to look like over time and, and taking that into account as they build capability. So I, you know, I think it's absolutely a valid point. Uh, and I think it needs to be part of the thinking. Right, what, what is it going to take for us to not be helpless? It's going to take this kind of new mindset, this new approach to systems and systems management that that organizations haven't had historically. Do you think that new approach, I mean, have you seen signs that it's changing? Signs that the organizations, at least that, you know, your customers, the, the companies that you're talking to for for potential engagements, current clients, whatever, that they're starting to realize that and move in that direction? Or do you, or are you gonna, <laughs> do you have a more pessimistic view of it? No, and you know, I'm, I'm the sort of rare person in the security industry that's, that's actually quite optimistic. I, I think it's absolutely changing. And it's undeniable when you look at, you know, every single data point you know, not just the needs opinion, it's the, uh, it, there's a pretty compelling argument that, that tells you that. It's, it's uh, you know, the, the market analysts and how they increase their assessment of the, you know, the size of, of the market and the increasing growth rates of, of the market. And we see it in, in, and I'll tell you what I think is driving it. It isn't necessarily, you know, uh, security people waking up one day and saying, hey, we need more a better understanding of you know vulnerability management. Uh, what's happening is business executives, people outside of security, are asking different questions than the security professionals have, have been uh, been asking themselves. The security profession, somewhat infected by you know this fear and by you know the sophistication of or their oppression of the sophistication of the threat and the adversary are always worried about the better mouse traps. When in the last two years, we see business people, CEOs, CIOs, audit and risk committee chairs, uh, internal auditors, uh, boards of directors, asking questions of the security team. They see an Equifax, they see a FedEx, they see a Maersk, they see a Merck, they see super high profile breaches, and they ask very simple questions because they're not uh, you know, uh, uh, they haven't been conditioned by the security market. So they say, hey, holy smokes, that looks painful. Are we susceptible to that? What are we doing about that? And how, 
detection, behavioral, analytic, next generation, mouse trap things, those foundational questions are simple questions that you get the answers from having good type configuration management, having good visibility into your, you know, what you have and where and how it's exposed. And, and in many cases, that comes from your vulnerability management platforms. And that's why we're seeing very, you know, attractive growth in the VM market uh, and why many enterprises are now deploying enterprise-wide VM programs that they didn't have, you know, a few years ago, it was more frequently just to cover their PCI requirements or just to cover a particular business unit uh, uh, and not deploy more broadly. Whereas now it's becoming, I think, uh, you know, a very clear best practice. So to your, to your point on the better mousetraps, do you think we, do you think we have a problem in the, the cybersecurity industry with the number of the sheer volume of vendors and solutions and products out there um and there's just there's there there seems to be a niche product for everything and i imagine it's probably overwhelming for an enterprise to try to figure out like all right what really matters and what do i need to be doing and how do i go about you know sort of overcoming that cyber helplessness that you talked about. So is there a problem there? You know, look, there's a tremendous number of startups out there. There's a lot of, you know, whether it's 2,000, 4,000, like there's estimates all over the the map of how many cybersecurity companies there are. I wouldn't say that there, you know, the problem is that there are too many cybersecurity companies. I think, you know, the fact that this is a massive problem that the problems haven't been solved means that there's a lot of people out there working on it. There's a lot of you know entrepreneurial and innovative thinking, and I actually think that that's a great thing. That's how that's how problems get solved. It also, you know, as you point out, leads to a tremendous amount of confusion for uh, somebody that doesn't have clarity and an understanding of how these things fit together or what they bring to the cake table and what they, uh, you know, and what gaps exist. And so when that's the case, it really boils down to who's your, who's leading your program and how are they thinking? How strategically are they thinking? And you know, I hate saying it's the, it like, uh, the, it's the point of leverage, or, or the, the, that's where the CISA, you know, the, the chief information security officer, earns their money. That's where the, you know, the you separate the, you know, the real professionals uh, from, you know, from the ones that are just going to chase the the shiny object. And, and and there's a reason why some companies develop the culture that keeps them safe, and you don't see some companies in the headlines for all these breaches uh, and, you know, they run a tight ship that's got that cultural uh, bias around security and you see other um, other entities getting popped and, and you look at their practices and you say, these guys have just been, you know, sloppy. And, you know, I think Equifax was maybe one of the greatest examples where, you know, the uh, CEO gets in front of Congress and says, how could we possibly defend ourselves against nation-state adversaries? 
and then says, oh, it was a breakdown in system. Our tool didn't find it. The one person that was responsible for this was out on vacation or, you know, didn't do their job or whatever. And I'm like, you know what? Shame on you. <laughs> Shame on you for saying it's, you know, how could we, you can defend ourselves by doing the right thing, by exercising a reasonable standard of care. And if you have a process that relies on one person out on vacation, then again, shame on you for, you know, kind of leaving the crown jewels or some of the crown jewels, uh, you know, that exposed between bad technology, bad process, underinvestment in, in people and just systemic failure. Thanks to Amit Uran for spending time with us. And thanks for listening to this episode of the Risk and Repeat podcast. I'm Rob Wright, and we will see you next time.